Another eventful weekend of Premier League football. Merseyside is red, City are finding their straps at the right time, whilst Arsenal drop points again. Managers have been sacked, and an Australian even got an assist. However, it is VAR that has stolen the headlines once again. I'm Michael Pissaris. And I'm Joshua Cappy. And you're listening to this week's edition of the Perth De La Prem podcast. And it's live. All right, Josh, how you going, mate? Yeah, a bit stressed, but probably not as stressed as uh, Graham Potter at the moment. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So he's uh, having a torrid time. He's they've spent $600 million and and still can't gel things together. But um, yeah, did you have a, a nice Valentine's Day? Yeah, I did have a nice Valentine's Day, nice and relaxed. How about you? Yeah, uh, it was all right for me. I actually got sent around Perth. I mean, you know, I work pretty far away. So like I live an hour from work. And then I end up getting flowers on the way home after a staff meeting, which wasn't fun. They're never fun. And then I had to go pick up biscuits for our engagement party coming up soon. So priorities are right there. So I get her flowers and biscuits and I just get a card. So I see how it is. Um, All right. So let's keep this one football related. Nice little easy one to start us off. Uh, Which player made you fall in love with football? Uh, Look, it'd probably be... Today's one, Andrea Perlo, uh, starting off with the 2006 World Cup, following into obviously his days at Milan, definitely one of my you know, top players of my childhood and one, the one that kind of have the most nostalgic memories about, yeah, would definitely be Andrea Perlo and that uh, some, some wicked free kicks. Are you still, you're still kind of annoyed that he, he left for Juventus on a free and did so well? Oh, yeah, I'm annoyed, but not with him. That, that was Milan. Milan let him go. Silvio Berlusconi has decided that Pirlo was too old and nothing left off. I'll get rid of him. Yeah, well, he's bloody wrong. <laughs> I can see you got your AC Milan hat on there. Um, obviously, you did pretty well. It's probably the best thing Juventus have done in the last 10 or 15 years, maybe. <laughs> um, but yeah, now nah, for me, look, I just remember, obviously, and you'd know this as well, Like unless you had Foxtel, which is, for listeners' context, it's like the equivalent of Sky, um, or just basically paid TV. And, um, you know, I didn't have it when I was growing up. So Premier League was pretty hard for me to watch until maybe like 2009, 2010. And um, I just remember watching YouTube compilations of Ronaldinho and just the way he, he moved the ball. And like, you just don't see footballers like that anymore. He's just, he just had that real Brazilian flair. Like every time I opened up FIFA, I'd literally just be like, oh, whatever team Ronaldinho is on. And he was, he was just an amazing player. I just, I, I, I don't know. I don't think we'll see. You don't see players like that anymore. I feel like the flair's kind of gone out of out of football in a way. Like you see it maybe um, in some of the maybe not big five leagues, but still still not to that same extent. Um, I asked Gareth because he can't join us tonight. He said uh, Stephen Gerrard uh, is probably the footballer that made him fall in love. Obviously, being a Liverpool fan as well, he just said the way he wanted to play the game. He always wanted the ball. Uh, it was obviously really direct, and he, he carried that Liverpool team for so long as well. He could have easily just packed up and and left at any any given time. And um, he he believes that he's a natural born leader and probably the best midfielder to grace the Premier League. And he's just chucked a cheeky dig in here at Kevin De Bruyne. He says uh, Kevin De Bruyne makes Kevin De Bruyne look like Napoleon Dynamite. So 
Cheers for that one, Gareth. Always having his input there. Um, all right, Josh. So, like I said at the top of the show, VAR's kind of taking the headlines once again for all the wrong reasons. I don't think there's ever been anything reported positive about VAR unless it's your team, so to speak. Um, so, we'll get the fun way, fun one out the way uh, first. So, VAR, obviously, it's managed to maintain its status as the center of attention, at least for another week. Uh, with some really competent decision-making at the forefront of a few fixtures and does have ramifications at both ends of the table, really. Um, so we'll break down the three main incidents, um, which are the Suchek handball against Chelsea. Um, I mean, he did a pretty good job playing goalkeeper there. VAR obviously forgot to draw the lines um, and a new rule we've all discovered. If you're the third player to run to the ref, you'll get booked. So that's another one that we didn't all know about, which which is quite bizarre. Um, I find it quite interesting that we've called for VAR for so long to improve decision-making by the referees, yet those who are deemed to of need of needed help are now the ones in the van with 100 screens making the decision. So really, the decision-makers haven't changed. It's just, just that they've got some extra assistance. But I don't know, Josh, what's your take on VAR this weekend in particular? Look, I think look, VAR is never a perfect system. It cops a lot of criticism and Look, it often deserves it. I'm not saying it doesn't, but it's not the system that's the problem. It's still and always will be the people running the system. And unless you're going to have, you know, an AI operated system, that's always going to be the case. I think, you know, yeah, okay, we hear about these like massively poor decisions that the VAR make and whatever, and they, they come up often enough that it remains a topic. But I'd say if you looked and compared, if you were able to get news articles, say, from this year and look at all the VAR mistakes compared to, compared to, say, 10 years ago and look at all the ref mistakes, it's still going to be half as many mistakes because they've got more time. They should be making less mistakes. Okay, they should, you can argue they shouldn't be making any mistakes, but they should definitely be making less mistakes than what they're making now. Yeah, I think maybe the implementation as well. And I, I've always said it should be kind of similar to, I think, I don't really watch rugby, but I've heard that the referees, there's a mic that they have and they can actually explain the decision. I think a lot of the anxiety comes from either, you know, in some of the grounds, like when I was at uh, the Manchester Derby recently, there wasn't a screen there. So like when um, it was Rashford that scored, Bruno Fernandes that scored, like all of us in the city end had absolutely no idea what was going on. Um, all, all we had seen is that Manchester United players were kind of surrounding the referee, pleading their case. Um, I think that adds to it. And yeah, obviously, there's no official explanation from referees. Do you do you think they actually need to come out and explain themselves in a press conference similar to how, you know, players and managers do? Because, you know, for me, they, there should be some accountability there. Um, obviously, the referees are, are quite protected um, and, and sometimes rightly so. But I think an explanation could go a long way to sort of easing um, the frustrations around VAR and refereeing decisions in general. Yeah, look, I guess we get we get some explanations, particularly when mistakes are made, you know, and they'll come out and admit, you know, they did admit that there were a few mistakes this weekend. I don't think the Suchek goal actually was officially recognised, but definitely I think the Brentford equaliser was, rec- was recognised as a mistake and the um, Brighton disallowed goal was recognised yes. as a mistake. Um, I think the problem with having you know, the, the an interview is you've got always going to have, you know, people attacking them and it doesn't matter if they were actually right or actually wrong because the opposition fans, are, you know, there are the good ones that can see, they go, oh, no, that was a foul or that was offside or whatever. But 
you're always going to get those one-eyed fans that are like, you know, their team can do no wrong, should go through the game with no fouls, no nothing. And they're just going to throw abuse and they're just going to take that opportunity to abuse the ref, which is why the refs aren't put in that position in the first place. And unfortunately, you've got to play to the lowest common denominator in the world. And that's unfortunately the people that will just attack them blindly for nothing. It's not, it's not going to be any sort of like reasonable discussion where they, you know, reasonably justify the important decisions in the game. It's going to be just a complete attack and the media, obviously fans don't get into those rooms, but the media will jump on that because that will sell them or get them clicks or whatever it is. They'll jump on the refs. They'll be like, Oh, that was, you know, this, this, and this, so that they can have an inflammatory article about that referee and it becomes a personal attack as opposed to really focusing on the football. As much as, as annoying as these mistakes are, you can't turn around and just attack people because of it. Yeah, you do make some uh, good points as well. And um, perhaps this has been me in the past. Do you, do you think by some for, for some fans, it's an easy excuse to, to just use, oh, we were robbed by, by VAR? Because, you know, I've been there before many, many, many games, but VAR kind of distracts from the performance um, of some some teams. For some reason, people seem to look at VAR mistakes like they're different from regular refereeing mistakes. Yeah. Like, it's not like it's a computer. People, for, for a while, people were treating it genuinely like it was some computer making decisions that didn't make sense, and it's not. It's just another guy looking at it on a screen with a little bit extra time. Um, you know, all the goals that get taken away for the offsides that are done through the VAR. And it's like, but they were offside. Well, you know, mm. for the for the most part, they were actually offside. It's just the guy running alongside the pitch doesn't get a chance to see it, which really doesn't seem that surprising given, given that he's a guy running alongside the pitch. I think, yeah, look, people do use it as a cop-out sometimes. They like to blame the ref because their team's losing. The other thing is I think even some of the best fans can only say they're, you know, 60-40 when it comes at looking at refereeing decisions with their team. If there was a 50-50, they're always going one way and it's not, do you know what I mean? They can't always recognise a true 50-50 that's in its in itself hard to call, but they're going to go, oh, no, that was, you know, definitely definitely in our favour. So it's like, you know, yeah, they'll, they'll see the really obvious ones, but they still won't see the really, really tight calls. They'll be like, oh, that could have been let off or whatever. Well, I think it, obviously it's here to stay, so we probably kind of just got to accept it um, and just you know realize it's going to be part of part of football for the foreseeable future. I mean, I'd, I'd, one thing I would say is I think there probably just needs to be some slight tweaks to it. Um, you were kind of just mentioning before the show, Josh, when we were, we were chatting um, about just really, really close offside calls. And I know um, Arsene Wenger's kind of been an advocate for this in the past, where whereby you know. It shouldn't be offside if it's like, you know, if it's their pinky or it's their like big toe or, you know, the ones there that officials or VAR officials spend time, you know, two or three minutes kind of contemplating over a decision. Because for me, what's clear and obvious, I, I, I really don't think even after a couple of years of VAR being in the Premier League and around European football and, and football across the world, we still don't know what is a clear and obvious error. Um, obviously, offside's pretty clear and obvious, but... Do you, do you think any there's any other tweaks that maybe need to be made just just to make things flow a little bit better? Does it need to be maybe a time bar like you know you've only got one minute or thirty seconds maximum and just just keep the game flowing because again that's it kind of only raises the anxieties uh, anxiety of fans and and just adds to that frustration overall. 
Yeah, so just on that point we were talking about before the game, I was talking about the Bentan Kerr goal in the Tottenham Leicester yes. game, and yep. that copped a lot of criticism because, well, not criticism, but it copped some criticism because his, if you look at the VAR, they say that he his toes were offside, but the goal was allowed because of the tolerances of the like lines drawn by that particular VAR system. And I looked at that and I read that and I thought that was interesting because I'm like, but that's that's exactly not a problem. And I was saying to you before, players can't be expected to, you know, you know, yeah, they've got to keep them on side. That's their responsibility. But they can't make sure that the, you know, edge of their boot isn't one blade past the defender. That's You can't see that on the pitch. Yeah. You know, you look 20 years ago, that wasn't offside because no matter how good a position the um, linesman was in, that was impossible. So the VAR rule almost needs to be adjusted to accommodate the fact that if you couldn't see it with the naked eye on the side of the pitch, then it wasn't offside 20 years, 10, 20 years ago. It shouldn't be offside now. And if that means they need to give a player, you know, obviously they have to they have to draw a line in the sand somewhere. If that has to be, you know, they have to be more than three centimetres offside, something to that effect to make it actually, you know, realistically, mm-hmm. you know, achievable for the player to be able to keep themselves onside. But, you know, it should have been noticeable back in the day, you know. Um, as for other changes, look, I know what you're saying. I get what you're saying at the flow of the game, and nothing's more irritating than watching a game and a goal goes in or whatever, and the VAR is taking two, three, four, five minutes to check it. But we can't talk in one hand about how we're not happy about the mistakes that VAR is making, and then going, let's take some time away from them. Let's put them on a clock because that never gets better decisions made, I don't think. And it's just gonna it's just gonna increase the number of mistakes they're making because they're not taking the time. Um, I think, and correct me if I'm. Let me know what you think on this. When it's a goal, I think definitely take when it's like a goal going in or a potential penalty, take as long as you want because play stopped anyway. You're not breaking up any kind of flow mm-hmm. for a, a quick free kick, but maybe you know when they do the red card checks and stuff, especially when it's like in the middle of the field and. Maybe they can be on a bit of a tough because you know at that point you're letting the other team get back and defend. You know what do you think about that? Like it's just when when it's a goal and stuff they're stopped anyway. So yeah, I agree. I mean, yeah, and then I think probably if you do something like that, it probably um, alleviates that whole clear and obvious sort of sort of thing there because oh, there's this whole thing about phases of play as well and you know oh they go we didn't check that because it was a different phase of play but it, it really wasn't half the time i think yeah maybe just general things like penalties and goals should be checked um obviously like offsides and and whatever um but yeah i feel like you know you've got to trust the referee here because i feel like it just only complicates things you know and and you know it's one of those things as well you know as soon as the referee is going to that that monitor or that panel he's basically going to overturn it i think there's something to be said here about the referees you know being too scared to sort of override those in the the VAR room because, you know, they feel like, oh, well, they've got more of a exclusive angle. They can see things better than me. Um, I also do wonder, and we could really go on about this forever, but I also wonder if there's a bit of a hierarchy thing there as well with Premier League referees, you know. Maybe they're just like you got, say, at the moment, there's actually an Australian referee who was the one who we'll talk about in a second because he's the one who handed out the second yellow card uh, to Mario Lamina for Wolves. Um you know, I wonder if people like him coming in just kind of go, well, you know, I can't disagree with Jonathan Moss, who's been a Premier League referee for 25 years or something. Um, yeah, there's a whole heap of issues. But just to get back to your point and answer your question, I think, yeah, definitely maybe things like cards, like yellow cards, also red cards, um, 
I think we could probably just leave that to the referee and just kind of have a bit of trust in the, in our referees, you know, just go with the on-field decision. Um, you're not checking at different angles because, you know, you slow things down sometimes um, and it can change the whole outlook on on what the incident actually was and it make, can make things either look worse or maybe not look as bad. Um, I think you just got to take things like that on face value and, and just check the important things like goals. Um and just, just to finish off VAR, um, well, before we go into the incidents, I think as well, it's the only thing I probably don't like about it is I feel like, you know, every time City score a goal now, I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of waiting. I'm like, oh no, VAR is going to check it. There's always this anxiety around, oh shit, who's offside here? So, you know, it's done a lot of things to football and I think people kind of get used to it. But um, I, for me, I think it's just sl- slightly implementation. Um, and I think as well, that it's probably just a bit of a, I suppose you'd say a bit of a teething period right now. Um, so yeah, without wasting too much more time, let's let's get into one of the first incidents. I'll bring it up on the screen here. So like I said to you, uh, couldn't get it on a video. So we're going to just play a bit of Graham Potter's thoughts um, and then they'll, we'll go through the incident as well. So can you see that all right, Josh? Yeah, I can say, mate. All right. Suchek would make a good goalkeeper if you go down to 10 men. You need your goalkeeper sometimes to, to get you the points. I mean, it's, it is, hasn't been given, so there's nothing for me to say. Um, I've only seen it briefly as I walked across. Um, I think it looks like one of those ones that if it was given, I don't think it would have been overturned, but it hasn't been given. So, Well, it wasn't given, but we certainly have something to say on it, don't we? Because I think everybody watching that has been left flabbergasted by why it wasn't given. I think what Graham Potter said, it was a great save. Um, we're all kind of scratching our heads <laughs> yeah. going, I, I don't know, but... Again, I can't even give you a reason for it. It's clearly been missed. And, it, you know, if you're a Chelsea manager, player and fan, it's frustrating. Yes, it's poor. I don't, I don't see how you can't you can't give the decision. I mean, it's, it's probably one of the most obvious decisions out there. The ball's blatantly gone past Suchek. It hits his, his back arm on the floor and it prevents the ball from maybe going in potentially. And the fact they haven't given it. I mean, this is the best angle. You can quite clearly see there. Great save. The fact they haven't even checked. Well, I think they've checked it, but they haven't given that decision. I can't understand how. I really can't. Yeah, I think just watching it back, it just... Okay, so, yeah, great save by Thomas Suchek yeah. there. I mean, for me, how how is that not being given? I mean, at first, when I was looking at photos on social media, I didn't watch the game. Um, I thought, oh, maybe he's just slipped and it's just been a little bit unlucky there. Um, but... You know, for me, you can tell he's gone gone the way of the ball, and he's it doesn't even look like he's tried to slide in because he slid the opposite way to the way the ball's going. I mean, <laughs> again, yeah, you can look, have you've got all the technology in the world, and you don't give that. How, like, how's that not being looked at? See, this is where I'd agree sorry. with your point about red cards and things like that because, like, honestly, like, man, that that's that's clear and obvious. I hate Chelsea, but fuck. So that's my actual first time seeing that one. I've seen the other two mistakes that we'll talk about in a second but that's my first time seeing that one that has to be one of the dumbest things i've ever seen like i get it the rule is you know if the the ball hits a supporting arm on the like of a player on the floor it's not a handball because you know they're trying not to fall down but not if you actively jump at the ball that's not (laughs) like you can't like if it's not like he was on the floor and getting up and he had his you know his hands on the floor and was like propping himself and the ball just kind of hit him he jumped in the way of the ball, hands first. Yeah. It's not... <laughs> you can't... Well, there you go. It's a revolutionary new tactic. David Moyes playing with two goalkeepers. I mean, you can't... 
yeah that's and that's just and that's just that's just you know um personnel error you can't you can't say anything else about that but it's not been checked by var when it really should have been and i, I don't know what else to say on that the funniest thing about it is was it going to be a goal if he hadn't touched it because it was it was on target sure but it wasn't it didn't seem like, 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 yeah. like he had it covered to be honest exactly but that doesn't matter. That's not this is entirely no, not, not point. the point. No. You know, you dive out with a leg, you stick a left leg out. He was upright till the shot was laid and then took the just I don't I don't even know what he was thinking. Like <laughs> but sorry, that's not very coherent, but like, problems. Like even the referee on the field, like depending on his position, he looked like in a decent position. He's not even thought, oh, Okay, like he's gone the wrong way. Like his arms that way, his legs are going that way. So it's not like he's slide tackling unless he's really badly anticipated it. But I mean, that's just that's just another example of the poor officiating that's kind of existent uh, in the Premier League. We get now. we get told that every goal gets looked at by VAR, but you got to wonder after that one because I didn't have to watch that twice to see that mistake. Like that was like, you know, that's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, and- what the fuck. The on-field the on ref, whether or not he saw it or not, yeah, okay, I can see how you could have missed it. it no matter how good position you're in, whatever, it looks fine. But the, the VAR ref, I don't see how you missed that. And, and yeah, yeah especially look, I'm if they're analysing everything. Yeah. Uh, I, I almost feel like it's not worth going into, though, because it's just one idiot watching a screen making a mistake. But there's no there's no, like, technology to be looked at there. It's just... Completely human error. So it's, it's yeah, yeah. That's mate, it's you yeah. You're right. Like I, I actually don't have the energy to go into that anymore because that no. that's pretty. That's clear as day. I think I think we can kind of go on that one. Um, I didn't. I don't actually have that Benton core one, but the next one we'll go over to is the Arsenal one. Um, obviously Brentford scored an equaliser. There was an offside, and the VAR forgot to draw lines. I mean, God, you have one job. Draw the lines, like isn't that what they're supposed to do if they're checking for offside? Uh, I think, I think maybe. Oh, I can't quite remember, but he's, he's drawn the lines, but I think he didn't draw it where the last defender was. So there was there was a bit of an error there. Um, so the video I'm about to show you basically shows where the line should have been drawn. Um, but I'll, I'll explain where the line. If you haven't seen it, where the line actually was drawn. Um, and just for a bit of context, if anyone didn't actually watch this game, I watched it because obviously I was in, had vested interest with City. Um, look, Brentford. Honestly, could have been out of sight at this point. Again, it's not the point. Um, it's a poor decision, and it, it's probably cost Arsenal uh, a couple of points. But, yeah, I'll just get this one up on screen. I'll get your thoughts, Josh. Yes, I just looked it back, and it is offside, yeah. I don't know. Probably they will give an explanation later on in the week, but um, today we haven't got any. But looking at the images, and you have to apply certain principles in defending, and you do that by sticking to the rules and suddenly you apply different rules and you have to change your principles. So tell us before, because then you don't hide the line in, in that height, because then obviously you're always going to have an advantage if you get blocked. Which action specifically are you talking about here? Was it when the, the header was played forward for? Yeah, the action when you get blocked when you are offside. You cannot block when you are offside. And that ball goes. Yeah, he also looked offside when he crossed the ball back. I think so. But then I'm hoping that. All right. Technical issues, but I'm sure you saw the first shot. 
So yeah. that's where they should have drawn the line. But th- this was that whole thing you were kind of talking about at the start, right? About how, like, you know, maybe something like that's not offside. Well, it's not even that. But I just want to call Arteta out here because he's done what you were talking about before as basically as a fan blaming VAR for their loss in the sense that he's saying, oh, you know, we set up to play by the rules as if that guy being what his heel offside was the most perfectly executed offside trap in the history of the world. The defender standing in line with that player did not know that his heel was technically offside. It's not, you know, what, that guy has his foot this this much forward and he's onside. The defender's going to be aware of that. I don't think so. That's, you know, it's still a defensive mistake. Yeah, okay, it shouldn't have been allowed as a goal. And I think it was probably enough that it maybe even goes past my tolerance. Maybe. Hard to see from, you know, just a little clip there. But to to try and say that the defence was, oh, you know, we're playing by the rules if you go and change the rules. Yeah, definitely a goalkeeping, a umpiring, refereeing mistake. But... (laughs) You can't say that it was, you know, destroying their beautifully set offside traps. That's a bit funny. Um, I mean, oh, go on, Josh, go on. Yeah, look, I think, I think the other question I'll ask you this one, Michael. I think is, what what do you reckon the referee was going through? I know there was actually a lot for them to be reviewing in that situation because, and Arteta touched on it a bit there. There was the foul with the potential offside, then the shot, then another shot. So they were checking, you know, what a foul and two offsides. So what do you think might have happened in that in that VAR box from there, Michael? Well, yeah, you just mentioned there was a few incidents kind of leading up to it. There was shouts for a foul. Um, there was the offside. Then there was obviously the goal itself. So I think uh, the only thing I can think of just being humans and, and, you know, we all make mistakes in terms of, you know, especially when like lots of things come up in that short space of time, he's just got a bit flustered and, and kind of, you know, he's just forgotten. But I feel like, you know, just being thorough and precise in that situation really it's just really pivotal because you know if you like I don't know I just feel like that's that's a real sort of rookie mistake to make and yeah the only only possible explanation is that they've just got confused and there was too many different things they were looking at and then they've perhaps just lost sight of what what the real issue was because I don't think there was really a foul there were shouts but I don't think that was really a foul I think the offsides generally the if the referee hasn't called a foul for me the the offside should be the first priority that's the first thing that you look at because you know if it's offside it kind of overrides everything else anyway um yeah. and obviously the end result and the most important thing in football is scoring goals so I think yeah they, they probably just need to realign their focus and sort of priorities in that situation but yeah, it's kind of unexplainable. Um, only the referee would kind of know himself. But yeah, I think it, I think it's a poor mistake to make. Funny though, you say that on Arteta, um, you know, using that as kind of a shield to the performance because I don't think they played that well. I think Arsenal are looking tired, and we'll touch on it later. But you know, Brentford actually wrongly had a goal ruled out earlier in that game. The referee deemed it a foul, um, and VAR didn't even look at it. So. You could say it kind of balanced itself out. I don't. I don't like to use that as an excuse, but you know, like I said, Brentford really could have been out of sight by halftime. They were really wasteful in front of goal, and that you know, draw in the mm. end, perhaps a fair result considering you know Arsenal weren't at their best. Um, if you don't have anything else to say on that one, I'll quickly yeah, no, just move on that. to the last one. Um, we've got this is the Aussie referee, so Aussies making their names this week: Harry Sutar and uh, Jared Gillett. So there's not too much to see here other than 
Mario Lamina running up to uh, the referee and basically just getting a second yellow card. I mean, that's, that's fucking pathetic. But anyways, let's have a look. Lamina comes running at the referee. Now, we don't know what was said, but earns himself a second yellow card, which I think is a little harsh. And can... Yeah. So another one, questionable one. It, look, it might be in the rule book. I, look, I haven't got time to go through Premier League rule books and, and see if that's in there. But if I think it was Ruben Neves and Jao Moutinho who were there first. So the first two players, and they were kind of giving him a bit of an earful and going on about it. And then Lamina's basically rocked up and he's been in a general vicinity, barely near the referee. And he goes, oh, third, third player, that's it, mate. That's my tolerance, yellow card. Um, Josh, what do you think of that? Look, the ref, the ref probably has just got whether or not it's an actual rule. Don't know. He might have just seen a third person come up with him, got annoyed, and forgotten that he was already on a yellow. But I'll say this: whether it's the right call, whether it's the wrong call, almost doesn't matter to me because when I see players get second yellows for doing dumb crap like that, I don't feel sympathy for them at all. You know, you're on a yellow. You've got uh, ten other teammates on the pitch that can go yell at the ref. Leave it. Don't be the person that gets the second yellow for. Um, What's that word? Uh, insubordination or what? This thank you for dissent. Whether or not whether or not it was justified, yep, definitely questionable. But his decision to even do that is just dumb. You're on a yellow. First of all, I've never seen a ref change their mind from people arguing with them in the first place. Anyway, so the whole concept's pointless. But if you're on a yellow, it's even more pointless. If you've got two people arguing the point already, it's even even more pointless. You're risking the yellow, whether it's the right call, the wrong call. Like I said at the start, you know, you you yeah. you you're, you're taking that risk, and it's really dumb. As I'm far as you know, you know, as far as it, you know, not being a yellow and whatever. I think I don't like the fact that the second yellow to, is harder to get than the first yellow. If it would have been a yellow yeah. in the first place, I think it should be a yellow in the second place. There shouldn't be that whole oh, it's a second yellow. You shouldn't get a second yellow for little bits of dissent here and there. I don't. I think no. If it was if it was going to be a yellow, if he was on no yellows, it should be a yellow if he's on one and stuff him. Yeah, it's kind of that whole idea, like you know, they'd give a, a certain fouls they'd give outside the box, and then they'll go give one in the box. I must admit, like your perspective, I didn't quite see it from that perspective of the player. Just should have stayed out the way. But look, I don't know if that was necessarily a rule that anyone was kind of aware of. I mean, I certainly wasn't, and it actually happened in another game this weekend. It's kind of like it reminds me in got people listen from all over the place, right? Kind of reminds me of the AFL, like they'll occasionally play like, um, they'll kind of pay that rule, like kicking in danger and they haven't paid it for like a year and a half. And then suddenly one weekend, it's like it's on the board. Oh, this week, boys, we've got to focus on this rule. Um, yeah, so it's, it's quite an interesting one. I mean, let's be honest, would Bruno Fernandes even be playing football if, if, if this rule is applied every single week? That bloke is a fucking moaner. So yeah. yeah, but he's moaning first, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah, he's a little bitch, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> True. I'm sorry, he's not the third. I mean, I don't no, know no, first he's first. Is. He's moaning first, yeah, so he's look, all right. And actually, actually, I will say you made a good point there. Like, whether it's it's soft or not, if it's a yellow, it's a yellow. Same if it's a it's a foul, it's a foul. And if it's in the box, it's a penalty. It's the same in all sports, like AFL as well. Like you know, they don't. I could be a foul, I could be a, a free kick, right, in a different area of the field or the pitch. But for some reason, when it gets close to goal or whatever, they just change their mind. And whether that's a subconscious thing or it's a it's a completely 
it's it's on purpose. I, I don't know, but yeah, I think maybe that needs to be leveled up a little bit. And look, if you if you are harsh with these sorts of things, you know, we know this being teachers. If you follow through on rules and and you're harsh on these things, then these don't stop. these things don't happen anymore. It just it stops. And yeah, okay, look, I maybe don't agree with it being a yellow for that. That's a bit stupid, but that's the rules. It's the rules. Um, and yeah, like I say, if it's implemented consistently, fairly, then again, players don't do it. So, um, look, Josh, uh, I think it's probably a good segue into part two. Have you got anything else to add on VAR before we do carry on? No, I think we've, I think we've got, I think we've got it covered. Yeah. Far out, mate. 32 minutes on VAR. What a waste of time. All right. So here we go. Part two in a moment. I'm not sure if that sound effect worked, but we'll we'll continue on. So next topic here. So we're just going to review a couple of games and, and we'll preview the City game as well. So Liverpool and Everton obviously squared off. And, and what is a fierce rivalry despite the parity in their league positions? Always heated when you play your local rivals. Um, Everton have proven to be a bit of a tricky opponent for Liverpool in recent times, but really didn't pack much of a punch against their local rivals this time out. Obviously, Liverpool are massively out of form. Um, and I'm pretty sure... It's their first Premier League win in 2023. So, Josh, perhaps didn't watch it, but what did you make of the Merseyside derby? Well, I want to start by saying, you know, you talk about parity in position. I think it's parity in the sense that Liverpool are about seven, six, seven places below where their, you know, team would have expected them to have been. And you can say the exact same thing about Everton. You know, Liverpool would have expected to be in and around the top four. Everton would have been expecting to be at least, you know, in that 10 to... Third, a not in a relegation battle, you know, as a, as a, as a, as an at least kind of thing. So yeah, I think there's definitely that kind of parity there. Yeah, I definitely didn't see the game. Um, look, Liverpool definitely needed to get a result. I wonder, you know, Everton coming off that win against um, Arsenal. Shame not to see them back it up because I hate Liverpool. But at the same time, you know, you can't get one of those lucky wins and expect that kind of form is going to continue going kind of forward, I think. So I'm not, I wasn't, like, I didn't wake up surprised to see the 2-0 and, yeah. you know, there's, there's not a lot to say on it because I didn't watch the game. So it's a bit, you know, not going to make comments that I don't have. Did you, was there anything you caught kind of in the highlights that you thought was worth mentioning or? Yeah, actually, I mean, the, the two goals, Everton are actually quite unlucky on the first one. Um, I think it was Tarkovsky from a set from a corner hit the post and then Liverpool actually, it's just peak Liverpool really what they do to teams. It's what even against some of the best teams they do just in transitions, they are one of the best teams in the world. Maybe not this season, but obviously still deadly. They still got the same players and and just suffering from a bit of a loss of form. So um, I think, yeah, that was just peak Liverpool and it was just, it was electric and I haven't seen that from Liverpool for, for quite some time and whether that's an Everton defensive problem or, or whatever, but um, you know, obviously to see Mo Salah on the break, he's impossible to start. Seeing it against City this year with Cancelo, make one mistake and and they're off pretty much. The, the intelligence those players have, you know, it's it's off the charts. And um, yeah, both goals were really in transition. There was there was a shout for a foul on a Wobi and Liverpool just broke. And it was a nice ball from Salah, just a bit of a tap in for for Cody Gakpo, who I do want to kind of touch on. I don't know if you knew much about. Like I knew a little bit about him mainly because of our uh, FIFA. But uh, I didn't know too much about him to the World Cup. And he was kind of that, that young star for the Netherlands. And he's off the mark now. Again, a bit like Nunes, kind of had some struggles. But it is hard coming into a struggling team. Uh, mm. What do you make of Cody Gakpo? Because 
He's he kind of does remind me in some ways of of the Hamas Rodriguez's of the world. Maybe Enzo Fernandez is closer to that bracket, but you know, had a good World Cup, had a bit of hype around him, and and now he's joined a big Premier League team and kind of struggled to assimilate himself, although it's still early doors. Yeah, look, I'll start off with you're right. This is the first win of the season, but not to uh, not season. Sorry, first win of the new year as far as the Premier League is concerned. They won an FA Cup tie. Not that anyone cares. It's also you know they've been having big offensive error, big offensive issues, and I think it's hard to judge players like Gakpo who are you know attack minded when the whole team is struggling offensively. You know, yeah, people put the expectation that they're going to come in and turn that around, and that's not really fair when the whole team's not functioning. I mean. Since the turn of the year in the Premier League, Liverpool have kicked, aside from the Everton game, kicked one goal. Okay, in the in their last one, two, three, uh, four games, and that's not against particularly quality op- opposition. You know, it's okay. Brighton, obviously a good team, but then Brentford, Wolves, and Chelsea. Not that I'm attacking. You know, well, besides Wolves, not that I'm attacking any of those teams. They're not. You know, they're not Arsenal, City, uh, United. They're you know middle of the table kind of teams you should be getting some goals at some point and and to not to not have managed that I think screams to big offensive issues and I think my review of that post kind of yeah definitely think one of those players that yeah buying after the world cup is like going to the shops before you have dinner you're gonna buy crap you don't need or want because you're hungry and it's the same thing it's the same thing here. They watch the World Cup. You see these players go off for their national teams for, you know, you look at a good World Cup run and these players don't come from the teams that, well, okay, you know, some do, but the majority don't come from the team that won it. So they're playing, they've played, what, three cup matches, uh, three group stage matches and then maybe one or two finals before their team got knocked out. Even if they go all the way, they played seven games in total. So what, they have a good seven-game stretch and their price doubles. It's like, I know it's the biggest competition in the world and I get that, but playing well for seven games in an international system, not necessarily or even very likely to translate into a whole, you know, 38-game season. Um, yeah, no, that's a, definitely a fair point. And looking at Gakpo's stats, he's still young, right? So he's, he's got time on his side, a bit like Nunez. I mean, Nunez had a prolific season with Benfica. Um, Gakpo's not really had that prolific season just yet. Probably slightly different player, more of a an out-and-out winger rather than a number nine, or I think he has played up front and big Darwin's shifted out onto the wing. But what do you put their offensive issues down to? Because they've obviously missed Jota this season um, for quite a bit of it. Uh, people going on about Luis Diaz, I, I'm not really too sure on him, to be fair. I mean, Gareth and Michael do go on about his importance to Liverpool, but Look, for me, Sadio Mane was still, and Salah on form, were still the two two kings of that attack. And um, obviously Salah's just, ever since he signed that contract extension, he has been absolute pants. <laughs> anything to get that one in. But he's been, he's been horrible. And look, these sort of players have got enough credit in the bank that they can probably afford a season off or, or two. But um, yeah, what do you kind of put it down to? Is it system? Is it burnout? Is it, you know, new players coming in? to a struggling team? Look, it's, I think, you know, I think it's pretty, look, it's to some extent, not, I want to say, well, no, I'm going to say, scrambling to make changes to kind of, you know, they need to turn their season around, they need to turn it around now. And to do that, they're trying to make changes that aren't 
aren't necessarily working, whether that be the purchases, whether that be slight formation changes or just tactical changes or just moving around players in different positions. And, you know, yeah, okay, injuries are always a contributing factor to things, but every team has injuries. And, you know, Liverpool's got enough of their, their star forwards on the pitch that you, one goal in four games isn't good enough. And you can't you can't really use that as the excuse, I think. It's almost like they're out of ideas. People have learnt to shut down Salah and they're not they're not just they're just not getting they're just not getting new ideas forward and it's a bit it's a bit like sometimes what I see City do where they kind of get stuck where they've got that like you know 90% of the possession. That's an exaggeration to make a point, but you know, they've got 90% of the possession, but they're just passing it around because no one wants to make that 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 ball forward and it's a bit of that kind of You've got to take that risk. You've got to accept the fact that, yeah, 50% of the time you're going to lose the ball when you play it forward like mm-hmm. that. But you've got the players, your Salas up there that can make something happen if you give them that opportunity. And they're not just not coming up with they're not coming up with ideas. And I had just a bit of a further look while you were while you were um, giving the explanation. And it's you know that one goal that I mentioned that was Oxlade Chamberlain. So not even one of their <laughs> you know not even one of their their, their actual Jeff. Unbelievable Jeff. <laughs> not even one of their main players coming through so it's like you know one of their main fours i should say coming through and it's like that's that's hilarious but at the same time you know what what do you think like do you think do you think it's you know just players out of form but how long can you use that excuse or is it something they need to change yeah, again, I'm going to mention City just because of my own sort of experiences and obviously following City. Like, you know, there, there was talks like, and, and City's still kind of out of form, but, you know, if everybody's out of form, then there's clearly something not quite right there. I think as well, you probably a lot of it could be put on maybe Liverpool's midfield as well because, I mean, look, they're not like City or, you know, even Arsenal where they have those real flair players in the midfield. But I think as well that midfield's kind of just lacking a bit of legs, a bit of energy, you know, that great Liverpool side under Klopp, those two or three seasons where they were constantly challenging. Um, you know, they had those workman-like players like Henderson when he was at his peak. I don't, again, I don't really rate Jordan Henderson as highly as some others. But, you know, um, and obviously Wijnaldum as well. They were just, they were kind of industrious and they really got the job done and they worked hard with that press. And, you know, that's what Liverpool were good at, like I said, in transition. And they're kind of missing those players right now. And mm. I think they probably just need a little bit of a spark. But then again, you can say this is, Poor squad planning. I mean, Liverpool fans yeah. and Jurgen Klopp love to bang on about how they can't compete, but I'm sorry, Liverpool Football Club and their owners have plenty of money, and I think feel like that's a little bit of a myth. Okay, you might might go, well, they're not owned by the Arabs or whatever, but you know, I think I think as well, it's probably just poor squad planning. And, and you know, looking at that midfield, it's James Milner still getting a game in there every now and again. I think that's really yeah. really a problem. And yeah, I, th- I think it's down to quite a few things. And look, again, people aren't really going to talk about Liverpool too much because of what they have done in the last few years. Um, you know, compared to some other teams, I think if they're in that position, they'd be getting a little bit more flack. But yeah, I think if everybody's off form, there's, there's clearly a reason for it. And I, again, I think it could just be as simple as a squad refresh. I mean, Jurgen Klopp's had some pretty interesting moments in press conferences. I don't know if he's feeling the heat, so to speak. But I mean, yeah, I, I, I think it's probably a personnel as much as anything and and just just a bit of a burnout season because that happens i mean the amount of football these guys play these days and i don't like to defend liverpool but i mean it, it's totally understandable because city themselves haven't been at their best um but again they've refreshed the squad a bit more frequently yeah 
I don't want to harp on about this too much longer, but I do want to ask you one more question then. Do yeah. you think, given that you, you highlighted their midfield as kind of lacking, do you think then Nunes and Gakpo both, which drew considerable transfer fees, were the wrong places to put the money? Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, how much do they spend on Nunes? Like 89 million or 80 something million? I mean, look, they obviously needed a Ford. Sadio Mane's gone, but you'd have to say if it came off and he was scoring similar numbers to Mane, you probably wouldn't be asking me this question, right? But yeah, look, I think they probably needed to put the money in midfield first. And I look at someone again, like I think Enzo Fernandez would probably suit them really well. And I've said this before, I think I said it on last pod, you know, you could have got Enzo Fernandez. For 14 million from oh, where did they come from? It wasn't River Plate, um, or it might have actually been, but anyways, you could have got players like that. Uh, there's, there's players out there, and look, you could say maybe they're sa- saving up for a Bellium, but I think there's a couple of other clubs in there that, that are maybe interested in. And if Liverpool can't compete and they can't spend, then I'm sorry, but I don't see how a world in which Jude Bellium ends up at Liverpool, especially when he's going to command a 100 to 150 million transfer fee. I mean, maybe they could say, well, we won't pay him the wages, but. I mean, he's one of England's best talents. So, look, it'd be interesting to see where they go. They might they might be plucky and, and sign someone under the noses of everybody. But, yeah, I, th- I think just to round off your question, yeah, I think they have spent the money wrong. And, you know, obviously it's one thing to go spend money on Nunes, but then to go spend another 30, 40 million on Gakpo when you are halfway through a season and you know your midfield's struggling, then it seems... A little bit strange. I, I'm not too sure. And they've, they've been lauded for their business in the past. But yeah, I, I don't quite understand it. Maybe they're just not rushing into things like some other clubs do and it might be a masterstroke long term. Yeah. I think that brings up another interesting point uh, that we talked about last week with the kind of Premier League and how they're changing the transfer market and stuff. And it brings up an interesting point that you brought about uh, Martinez about picking him up for $14 million. And I found particularly the big six in the Premier League seem to shy away from doing that. They seem to only want to pick up players that have massive price tags attached to them, either mm. being 40 mil and 19 or being 100 mil and developed. They don't seem to want to buy that $14 million 22-year-old and 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 have him develop at the club as much as you know they do. I, I know like in the Serie A, and I'll, I'll use AC Milan's example just because I'm so familiar with it, you know, we bought um, Ben Benassier for, I think, yes. 14, 15, 16 million dollars. From Arsenal? Uh, or whatever. Um, pardon? Was that my Oh, name? from Arsenal, I think it was. No, no, we bought Benassier from Everton. Oh, no, Everton. From Empoli. Ah. Um, he was one of their players and they went, they got relegated, whatever nonsense. But. We bought him for 14, 15, 16 million, and he's valued at like 60 mil now, and he's considered like an integral part of our team. We needed a midfielder. We had 14 mil to spend, so we bought a 14 million dollar midfielder that worked for us at the time. And it's, I feel like sometimes the big six really shy away from buying those, I don't want to say cheaper players, but buy a role player. Sometimes they work out and turn out really well, but otherwise they're there to play a role and they don't just, they want it, they want it, they, they seem to just want those big number, big money or young, young players. And I get it, but. Doesn't always, you know. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Again, like going back to City signed Alvarez for 13, 14 million as well. Like that kind of surprised me in a sense. And ever, the kind of consensus around it before the season started is, oh, he's going to get loaned out. And I think maybe it was because of that price tag. And it's, it's interesting, the football ecosystem as a whole, you know, you see teams in Italy, uh, France to an extent, the Bundesliga especially at the moment, they go and buy these young promising talents and and in the hope of kind of develop 
developing them and they buy them at a decent price at you know cheap fee and then they go sell them on for for big money and yeah it, it is interesting and I, I wonder because you you'd think right if Bundesliga scouts there La Liga you know Liga Serie A if they're all there like the Premier League clubs must be aware of it. They'd be keeping an eye on these guys. And, yeah, obviously money is one of those things in football right now. You'd you think that, yeah, definitely they could save themselves a lot of hassle, um, you know, later down the line. So that that is an interesting point. Um, I was just going to quickly touch on Sean Dyche. Obviously, a bit of a new bat manager bounce. Got the draw against Arsenal. Um, oh, no, got the win, didn't he? I've just forgotten now. But anyways, I'll, I'll let you fill me in on that one. I've just had a mental blank. But um, So the new manager bounce kind of over as quickly as it ended. Do you, do you think that's a bit concerning losing to Liverpool or is it just a case of, well, Liverpool just quality and, and you know, Dash has got bigger fish to fry in terms of relegation battles? Look, I think, yeah, okay, the bounce was great against... Um, Arsenal Liverpool always going to pull out something extra against Everton for the Merseyside Derby anyway. I don't think I'm going to sit there criticizing Sean Dyche for losing to the team in 10th, especially when the team in 10th is, mm. you know, clinically underperforming. I don't think that's, you know, when you're in a relegation battle, you can't be sitting there going, "Oh, yeah, 10th, that's a must win." It's, you know, mm-hmm. 20th, 19th, 17th, 16th, 15th must wins for those new coaches that come in and lost to Liverpool even in the form they're in at the moment for Everton is not is not an embarrassing loss at all. I'd, I'd, I'd say the jury's still out. Obviously, it depends what they back that up with. You know, they've got leads this week. I think if they lose that, that's a problem. If they win that, then I think the Liverpool thing's just, well, the, the team in 18th, they're in 18th for a reason. It's because they're not great. So losing to 10th, even if 10th wasn't Liverpool, even if 10th was, you know, Brentford or Aston Villa who are around that mark and don't have the, you know, name of Liverpool with them, even if you're losing that game, you're not going to go, oh, well, that's it. Sean Dyche has got nothing for us because he can't beat teams that are in the top half of the table. I don't think that's a reasonable expectation. Yeah, and look, I actually, again, we'll touch on it a bit later just to, to quickly move on. But I actually think, yeah, Sean Dyche is probably the perfect manager when you're in a relegation battle in the situation Everton are in. I mean, they've got a decent squad. It's it's not great, but they've got a decent squad and lost Gordon, oh, yeah. of course. But, you know, I think teams like Southampton and Leeds are probably, you know, but he, they must be pissed off right now because I think he'd be the perfect manager for either of those sides right now. So we'll we'll leave that for a little bit later, but let's move on to part three, which is going to talk about the potential title decider between Arsenal and City. All right. So we're back. Okay, Arsenal versus City. So it's been a pretty crazy week from a City perspective. Obviously got the win against Villa and Pep Guardiola went bang in his press conference. He... He actually apologised to Stephen Gerrard yesterday in, in yesterday's press conference after the one previously where he said it's City's fault uh, for Stephen Gerrard slipping. Um, and, you know, obviously the subsequent charges. Do you, do you think, uh, you know, Pep's comments, the charges, the whole big picture has kind of given the squad a bit of extra motivation, which Pep said they don't have at the moment for whatever reason, to push on and get this third title in a row? I... I don't know. I, I People have been going on about, I've been keep hearing Man City, you know, they're back or they've had a bit of a lift in form and I, I'm i not really feeling it as a City supporter. You know, I've, I watch most of the City games, if not all of them, and it's, you know, the the loss against Tottenham and then, you know, okay, yeah, they came back and won against Aston Villa. Great. Like, they should be bloody winning against Aston Villa. It's not, you know, 
it's not like I, w- I wouldn't call that a return to form in the slightest. I want to see us turn around and, and beat a big team because, okay, besides the 4 2 win against Tottenham in the Premier League, uh, in, in early, yeah, yeah, late January, yeah, it was in the Premier League, but it was late January. You know, we lost to United, we've lost to Tottenham the second time. Um, and so we've got Arsenal tomorrow and we've got to see if we're going to win that. And it's, you know, I feel, it feels like our attack's running out, out of ideas against those good defenders. You know, I've, I, I've got a, I've got a, a feeling, you know, nil, nil draw tomorrow. And I don't think, I don't think, I don't think we're back. So I don't, I don't know about that extra motivation comment from Pep yet. I think he's trying to give them the extra motivation. Well, the reason I kind of say that in a sense is that it, Pep and a lot of City fans, and probably myself included, kind of feels a bit like a us against the world sort of scenario, bit of a siege mentality as well. Um, you know, like I remember like listening to that press conference the other day and just being, I felt so pumped up. Like I was ready to run through a brick wall for Pep Guardiola because, like, you know, he could have easily gone into that and just gone and said, no comment. No, I don't want to talk about it. The focus is Aston Villa, but he obviously feels strongly about it. And look, he could have egg on his face by the end of it, but, um, you know, I think he's done a pretty good job of, you know, people go, oh, he's only there because he gets the best players and he gets the most money. But, you know, I, I think he, I think, yeah, of course, he's, he's getting a handsome salary. Nice. But I think there's a bit more to it. And I think he actually does, does love the club to some extent. Um, probably more than people would ever give him credit for. You know, he's obviously stayed here the longest as well. And there's, there's obviously reasons for it. Um, I was, my next point, which I, it was, it was after the one I was about to ask you, but we'll, we'll go with it because you mentioned it. So, yeah, I think, Obviously, people are now favouring City. Kind of need to look at the bigger picture in a sense because it's been an up and down season. I mean, look, we've seen Spurs play Leicester and we're going to talk about that next. But, I mean, Tottenham Hotspur, for some reason, only turn up two times a season and it's usually against Manchester City. I have no idea why. It, they just are kryptonite, okay? So, you know, you, you could say, well, maybe that's a bit of an anomaly. But, yeah, I, I don't look, I don't think that City are necessarily back. One thing I did say to you the other day, Josh, and I've been bombarding you with lots of City stuff, is that it's actually quite funny what happens when Pep plays his best players. I mean, looking at Ruben Diaz coming back in, he got taken off at halftime because he's on a yellow, uh, which would probably lean towards him playing tomorrow morning or tonight, depending where you're listening from. Um, but he he's just like, he's maybe not our best defender, but I feel like he just provides that leadership and organization, which I think John Stones and Laporte probably are better defenders in terms of build up from the back and, and playing it through and helping that attack more than people probably realize. But Ruben Diaz is a leader. Like, you know, there was that tackle. I don't know if you saw Josh, where Leon Bailey was running through on goal. And like, um, you know, looking back at the goal we conceded, like Akanji kind of stood off, but Ruben Diaz was like, oh, fuck this, I'm going in for it. And he just had a bit of balls. In a football sense, he just had some balls. And we just honestly, at the moment, like Ruben Diaz, you can say what you want about him. Like sometimes I think he's a bit over the top. He like pumps his chest out and like, you know, gives, you know, high fives everyone, slaps everyone on the bum when a tackle goes in. But sometimes you just need a little bit of that. And uh, it'd be interesting to see. And for me, he needs to start every single game as long as he's fit with Laporte or John Stones for the rest of the season. Ake can sit at left back. Akanji can come in in case of an injury, but... For me, you've got to play your best players from now. And look, he played Bernardo Silva the other night, left back. I wouldn't necessarily continue with that and paid off against Villa, but I don't even know what the fuck he was doing. He was playing left back, defensive mid, and then he ended up on the right wing at some point. So Bernardo Silva, fair play to you. He's making, Pep's making him earn his last few months at City before he goes to sunny sunny Barcelona. But um, 
look, Josh, will, will the winner of this game go on and win the title? Because psychologically, obviously, Arsenal have a game in hand. They win. That's They could extend their lead to, what, nine points, I think it is, if they win this and win the next game, their game in hand. Or City could actually go top on goal difference with Arsenal having a game in hand. So it's a real six-pointer. Okay. Well, like I said before, I really do think it's going to be a draw and, I, and I'd tip the nil-nil. That's why I'm not getting up to watch it. Um, but um, I think, look, if Arsenal win it, I do almost think that's the season. I think, you know, six points, game in hand, so realistically potentially nine points. Um, especially since, you know, Arsenal are on a bit of a slump at the moment. If they win, that's kind of breaking their slump in a big way. And I think that'll kind of give them that motivation to go on for the, the next, kind of next leg of the season. I think that does end it. Do I think if we win, we, that's the title decider? No, I don't. I think because we go equal and then, like you said, they still have a game ahead. They're still three points ahead. City still have some kind of, you know, stuff to work through, I think. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it doesn't put us in a good position. It's definitely, you know, definitely going to put us in a good set. And I'd, I'd probably even call us maybe, you know, maybe favourites if we win the game against Arsenal that we win the league. But I'd, I'd hardly call it a decider if we win. I think it puts us firmly in the contest. I think if it ends the draw, then, then it depends. It depends if Arsenal break their slump. If we continue winning after that, then it's a complete, it's almost like an unknown, it's like an, it's like a null. Nothing happens if we draw. It's not as it's a meaningless result as far as the title's concerned. Well, I was going to ask you if if you your prediction does kind of come to fruition, a nil nil draw or, or just a draw generally, uh, who it's kind of better for. Um, I think you kind of alluded to it. Maybe doesn't do a whole heap. It just you know teams take the point, move on, continue. Um, you know, I I think as well Arsenal, like you say, they're in a bit of a slump, but good teams. And, and title-winning teams, you know, they, they do go through this. And I think what Arsenal were doing was kind of unsustainable, like 50 points after 19 games. That's amazing. They've been the best team in the league this season by far right now. Um, so, look, they deserve to be where they are. Um, but there's something inside me, and I'm not saying City are going to win it because last week after the Spurs game, I was pretty much like, well, this is done. You know, done a, Spurs have done a Spurs again, and they've just ruined our title challenge. But... Something about Arsenal just uh, doesn't feel the same as it did with Liverpool. And I don't know if you feel that, but they just don't seem to... Like with Liverpool, you'd watch a game when you're close in the title race and you'd feel like it was inevitable they were going to score. Even if they were like, you know, it was 1-1 in the 95th minute and there were six minutes out of time. You just felt like it was always coming. And this whole thing about Liverpool scoring late goals, fair enough, great teams. Um, I just don't kind of get that with Arsenal. I don't know what you think. Yeah, they're definitely labouring for some of their wins, and you know the last two was it last two draws? I think it is um, is not you know doesn't scream a vote of you know oh they're doing great. So I mean it's you know, drawing a loss. Sorry, sorry the Everton games that doesn't yeah. scream you know that kind of thing. But, but like you said, teams that win the title do. Everyone goes through a slump eventually. I think it depends how quickly Arsenal can break it. You know, it's a two-game mm-hmm. slump at the moment. That's not a massive deal. If they break it against City, that is huge. I think a draw means different things for both of us. I think if they manage to get a draw while they're still kind of in their slump, that's probably a positive for them. For us, it kind of is a continuation of our inability to get goals and win games against the top side. So I'd almost actually say a draw is better for them just based on the current, like, where the, each team is at, especially if they can draw, 
against us and then go out and win their following yeah. game and break their slump then, then that works almost not as well as them winning because, you know, an extra three points against us would be even better for them. But it works well for them, whereas if we, you know, draw and even if we win the next week, we've still not beat that top side that we need to beat. So it's just interesting. Yeah, yeah, definitely so. And like you say, it's a bit of a continuation of that inconsistency. I, look, for context, right, I think we did play well against Villa. It's more just whether you can replicate it. And obviously it was Aston yeah. Villa. Um, and you look, you could even go like we beat Arsenal in the cup as well. I know they rotated a few players out, but then they brought those guys on and then they still didn't really conjure anything. I think, yeah, like you say, it's, it's probably going to be in the attack. And I think the reason why I say if we play how we did against Villa, I think we're in with a good shout is because we moved the ball quicker. We had Laporte in there who's so important just to the build up because um, Ake and Akanji, Diaz as well, they're just not the same in terms of like. Pep system relies on those ball-playing centre-backs, those ones who are going to break the lines, those diagonal balls where, you know, you haven't seen that a lot this season. And I just wonder maybe if this has been timed in a sense, like now that it's time for these boys to come back in um, in some ways because Pep said there's a mini pre-season after the World Cup and City usually starts slow after pre-season. So, look, it's, it's one of those things. I, I think a lot of this kind of renewed confidence from City fans and a little bit from myself, probably not as much because I'm pretty pessimistic, is perhaps more down to the results of Arsenal rather than the performances of City because, look, if we take that Villa game aside, it's been really up and down. And honestly, we need to get the best out of Erling Haaland. And I think if we can do that and get De Bruyne firing again, then we've got a good chance. But there's still lots of if, buts and maybes and I'm sure there's going to be a bit of a turn. Um, And like you say, it just depends how Arsenal deal with this slump. But then you've got players in that dressing room, maybe not the best players, but some of their top players like Zinchenko and Jesus as well. They they know how to win it. They, they've been there before. Um, and then you've got Thomas Partey, who's played at a high level at Atletico Madrid. You know, there's some good players in there. And it, it's just obviously as well now, Jorginho is probably, I think he might have won the Premier League. Um, I might be wrong on that one, but we can double check that. But anyways, there's those experienced heads around there that probably just need to pick up those younger guys because I think players like Martinelli now are starting to sort of slow down and that's where players like Trossard are going to be really important. So yeah, look, I, I'd say it's a far from over and I, I think a lot of the reason why people are siding with City media and fans alike is really just because they've been there, they've done it. But you know what? That You've always got to start somewhere and, and there's always a first time for everything and and look, Arsenal have been the best team in the league and it's a slump really doesn't override or overshadow what they've done so far. Um, just quickly before we move on, um, Arteta wasn't really fired up and I've seen on social media some Arsenal fans and, and rival fans saying, well, why has Arteta not got fired up after that Brentford result? Do you, do you think he should have got fired up and, and got in, maybe not so much to the team, but about the performance after dropping points against Sprintford or is the calm approach the way to go? I think, I think, you know, I don't, I don't know. You you don't know what he said to the team behind closed doors. I don't see a lot of value in blasting the team on in press conferences other than that it appeases as fans. Um, which I like to see coaches really not care about because I don't see the value in appeasing fans sometimes. It's just not, doesn't always help. Appeasing fans doesn't always help the team. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are you going to blast them out after a draw to Brentford, especially when the team's already probably a bit down, especially since, you know, the draw technically shouldn't have been a draw, regardless of how badly they played, shouldn't 
had been, like we said, that goal shouldn't have counted. So to then blast them out, particularly publicly, probably doesn't send the right message to your team. And I think definitely the kind of, you know, if, if he wants to go behind behind doors, you go, yeah, okay, we got unlucky to the VR, but, you know, you boys didn't defend well enough. You boys didn't attack well enough. You didn't do this, you didn't do that. Yeah, whatever. But I don't think, yeah, publicly lamenting them would have been the right course. So I think the understated is fine. I don't, I don't place a lot of value in, oh, the coach is all fired up, so that's a good sign. Things are going to go well kind of doesn't Jürgen. really mean crap to me. Like, No, no, that, that's fair point. Fair point, definitely. I mean, yeah, who knows what he said behind closed doors as well. But I suppose as well, football's changed a little bit. Um, I think people, yeah, like you say, I think fans. And like, look, I love, I love when Pep gets fired up. Doesn't happen always. But, you know, I think fans, and that's why Klopp's so popular at Liverpool because he just, you know, it's passion, right? Yeah. But, you know, he's a bit of a madman at the end of the day. But you, you're right. And look, he, he's probably said different things behind closed doors and, and whatever. But I suppose you just got to read the room. And I suppose that's what the good managers do. So you're probably a fair point. Um, just last little thing, and then we'll move on to uh, Spurs and Leicester, because I know that's a game you want to discuss. Um, just for a little bit of a stat for you. So Pep hasn't lost to Arsenal in the Premier League. He's won 11, drawn one. So you're predicting drawn two. I am going to predict a 2-1 win. It's going to be tight. It's going to be scrappy. And I'm hoping the experience will kind of just get us through in this in situation. And uh, Look, I think City need to go at it. I think we need to be more attacking. And, you know, I don't think the attack's the problem. I think it's how we're attacking that's the problem. And I think that comes yeah. from Pep. So if we're a bit, little bit more fearless, then I think we'll probably be okay. I've got a bit more confidence than I would against Liverpool. All right, I want to make, an, I want, I want to make a quick thing with you. Go. Let's put our money where our mouth is. I'm going to put five bucks on the nil-nil draw. You put five bucks on the two-one win. We'll revisit this. <laughs> every time I, every time I bet, every time I bet, it never comes off, especially when it's my own team. So should I go for the nil-nil draw and you go for the two-one win? <laughs> Oh man! Oh Jesus Christ! Yeah. Okay. We'll we'll see how we go on that one. Um. All right, Josh. So on to the last couple of little segments. So Spurs and Leicester. Spurs, obviously, like I said, they've done a fucking Spurs again. They've lost four-one to Leicester City. Now, not a bad side, Leicester, but they've not been that good this season. Uh, one positive from it, well, for me anyway, and obviously Spurs losing is an assist for the big boy, Harry Sutar, he's slabhead 2.0. Uh, Josh, what, what do you make of this? Do you think Conte's kind of set up to leave at the end of the season? Is his football a little bit too prehistoric? Uh, okay, so I think, first of all, I want to say it's really interesting that a, a Conte coach team is having defensive issues. I think that's hilarious. Um, you know, four goals against Leicester, that's not great. The, 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 the highlight of that, though, because I was watching that game with my partner, like I mentioned before, she's a Leicester fan, so we watch all the Leicester games. So I got her into soccer. Um, the the two goals in two minutes was incredible. And I didn't even see the Madison goal because after the first goal, I thought, oh, nice, equalizer. I've got time to go to the bathroom quickly. No, no, I don't have time to go to the bathroom quickly. Um, I think that's a, that's bad from the defence. And I think, you know, all the goals and, you know, you've got the, the – um, Barnes kicked that other goal that was offside, so it could have been 5-1. It was offside again. It was one of those, you know, by a whisker. So I don't give any credit. You know, yep, I don't disagree that it should be disallowed, but I don't give any credit to the Tottenham defence on that. That's uh, They got lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, it wasn't an offside trap. It was a half a foot over. They got lucky that, that he was offside um, and that that goal didn't count. Otherwise, it would just been, you know, just one more goal for us to laugh about today. Yeah, I think, you know, and I'm going I'm to build on this and I'm going to, I told you I was going to mention this, so I'm going to go into it now. Um, the Champions League game against uh, uh-huh. my boys Milan went quite nicely. I'm pretty happy with how that turned out. And, you know, I didn't watch the whole game because it was 3.30 a.m. and I've got a job. So I watched, you know, extended, you know, 20 minutes or so of highlights. So I watched most of the attacking plays and stuff like that. And their attack was fine. Harry Kane, very unlucky that that ball bounced the wrong way on the line. Um, so, you know, it's definitely no, no credit to Milan there. But from a defensive point of view, some of the shots they let us get off were just ridiculous. There was, we had, I think, was what was registered as four big chances created to, to zero. But the, the important part is there, they were just letting us really get in behind them and stuff. And the actual goal that they conceded wasn't, you know, Teo shouldn't have got in in the first place. You know, the defender that was on him needed to do better. Um, once he got around them, the defender coming over to cover needed to do better. Um, Teo's got around him as well and managed to get off a clean, clear shot. Great save, nothing nothing knocking there. You know, don't expect the keeper to hold it. It was lashed in from like five metres, so can't, whatever. Bounces to the foot of Diaz, and that's where you've got to wonder what the defenders are doing because there was def- there were defenders there that were, you know, jogging into the box. It's like, come on, you've got, to, you've got an attacker free right there. And, you know, Diaz has lashed that ball again and could not give more props to the keeper for making that second save. That was... An absolutely amazing save. So no knock on him whatsoever. He saves it. Ball pops out. What that defender is doing that kind of flies in, I have absolutely no idea. And Diaz to be able to head home, the shortest bloke, I reckon, on the AC Milan side to head it home because no one contested him. That's embarrassing. And that's just poor defending. You know, yeah, okay, you can say it's one incident, but I say it's three incidents. And I think that's, you know, yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't touch on Conte leaving. And I'm going to let you touch on that because I've, I've talked for long enough, I think, on this topic. And I'm getting a bit passionate now because we're racing one <laughs> into it. All right, you've stopped but yourself yeah, I think, your tracks. Yeah, I think Conte's defensive, you know, prowess is maybe trailing away here. And, and I'll make one last point and I'll get you to like elaborate on it. And that is, do you think his defensive prowess is dropping away because at the start of the season they were having offensive issues? He's had to make that shift to make Tottenham more offensive. And the counteraction of that is this kind of not as lockdown defence as we're used to seeing from Antonio Conte. Um, look, I, I can't say I watch Spurs enough to, to kind of answer that completely, but... I mean, look, that's a fair shout as well because there's obviously a lot of calls for Spurs to be a little bit more attacking. I mean, Gareth has said on numerous podcasts, Michael's probably said the same thing about like you've got Son, Kuliseski, Kane. You've got even, yes, people going about Richarlison, but he's a decent player to have in your attack. Obviously signed Dan Yuma now as well. So they're clearly trying to focus on that and kind of improve on that. But, you know, I, I would say their attacks just hasn't been anywhere near as good except for Harry Kane. I'd say the attack's been just as bad as the defense as, as a unit. And, you know, in terms of defensive prowess, you mentioned how that's maybe possibly waning. I, th- I think, you know, I'm looking at the defense against Leicester here. You've got Jaffet Tanganga, who's no, by no means a world beater. He's, an, he's a reasonable player. 
got Eric Dyer, who I no, he's fuck off. No, he's he's not good, right? And then Ben Davies, who was a left back, now playing as a centre back. And then you've got Perisic in a Zimmer frame. And then you've got Emerson Royale, who's an absolute donkey of a defender. Well, they played well against City, of course. Um, and they've obviously brought Pedro Porro in as well, which too much fanfare. He got absolutely rinsed by, I'm trying to think who it was. I think it might have been, would have been Harvey Barnes. Yep, on that left-hand side. So, I mean, yeah, look, I think it, it's a it's a mixture of personnel, mixture of system as well. Um and yeah, I, I think in some ways it probably is pretty stoked. But, you know, you'd you probably go back to Italy next season and, and do quite well with whatever team you kind of took over, I think. But again, that's just a different game altogether, like in terms of how teams play over there. But yeah, look, I don't know. I just think as well, Daniel Levy's Conte is a manager who wants backing and to get the players he wants. And sorry, Daniel Levy's not your man. And you should know that by now. Like... You don't even have to join Tottenham to know that. Whether he's made assurances or not, I don't know. But yeah, I, th- I think it's personnel. And they've got some uh, awesome players. They've got some amazing players like Harry Kane, Benton Corr, and unfortunately now he's he's out for the season. He's done his ACL. Um, but yeah, I just, I just think in all departments, they're, just, they're, just don't, they're not good enough. They're lacking quality. And again, how's Eric Dyer still getting a game for, for Tottenham Hotspur? I mean, it's, it's, it's really poor. I don't know if you want to elaborate yeah. on that. Well, I won't elaborate too much, so we can um, just move on. But I'll I'll say this: I think you're right. I think Antonio Conte, I think his time here is up. I think I think he's not a good fit. And I don't. I'm not. It's not a criticism of him. I don't think he's a bad coach. I don't think I, I'm not ready to call time on his career or to say he's outdated or anything like that. I just don't think he's a good fit for Tottenham. Yeah. No, um, whether he's not whether he's a good fit for the Premier League at all is another question that I guess could be asked with the way he plays football. You know, we've talked about how. You know, you say Italy defensive very much more so, and but even you know other countries, I think you know maybe, but I wouldn't go so far as say that even that yet. But definitely Tottenham, he's not a good fit. I think, like you said, I don't know why he expected to get the backing from Daniel Levy. Coaches have literally left in the past ten years because they're not getting the back backing from Daniel Levy. So I don't know why he really expected that to change. I think you know you're going about Eric Dyer, but I think that's part of the reason he's still playing is because they don't have the backing to bloody replace him. Um, so, you know, it's, well, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those things. I think Conti's going to move on. I think not, not, not going to get fired. I think if you know, just get frustrated and leave and hopefully find a better pro I'd like, I want to see Conte at his peak again. And I think that needs him to be at a new project, whatever that project might be. Yeah, he obviously did quite well at Inter Milan as well. I think I think he probably could have stuck around there, but that was a similar thing with the ownership in terms of spending. And you probably know a bit more about that. But um, I think we'll we'll move on, Josh. Um, just quickly, this will be just a couple of minutes. Um, obviously, Nathan Jones has been sacked, and I, I'm gonna I'm just gonna call it now. He's the, probably up there with the top three or four worst Premier League managers of all time. That bloke is not getting a look in. Again, for a long, long time. Did well at Luton Town twice, actually. So he went back there. Um, I don't think he's going to find himself in the Premier League anytime soon. Um, and then in a funny turn of events as well, Marsh has now <laughs> emerged after being sacked by Leeds as a, a leading contender for the Southampton job. Do you, do you think this would be a good move for both parties? And it's actually funny as well. So his first game in charge could be against Chelsea. So that's not going to be a fun start. I wouldn't think even with Chelsea's form. And then his next game in charge could be against Leeds. 
So from one relegation battle to another, what do you think? So I think your point on Nathan Jones is funny. I think I think I know exactly when we'll see him in the Premier League again, as soon as he gets Luton Town promoted. Um, <laughs> Their manager's doing quite well now, though, so that that's the thing. It's it's probably closed yeah. doors there. Yeah. Um, I think Jesse Marsh, look, I don't think he's a horrible manager. I have nothing against the bloke. He didn't do a shocking job at Leeds, didn't do an amazing job at Leeds. I think Leeds has got issues outside of the manager that they are trying to paper over at the moment. And I think, I, I get it. They, they, they've just got to finish above the drop zone, go ahead in the next season. And I think if they needed to take a new manager and do that, whatever. Southampton, looking at Jesse Marsh, I think is interesting. I think Jesse Marsh wasn't doing well in one relegation battle. Why put him in even put him in an even harder one? I do think I do think if they get him in time for the Chelsea game, I think Southampton can get that win because Chelsea's playing like crap and new manager bounce is probably strong enough to get Southampton over Chelsea in that situation. Southampton versus Leeds. I will skip every other game. If Jesse Mars gets that job, I will skip every other game on that weekend. I don't care. I am watching that because that will be funny. You've got Absolute to wonder if he's got the, Yeah, you've got to wonder if he's got the background information on his old side to be able to say, oh well, you know, we can attack these weak spots or those weak spots. Yeah. Or, you know, but like look, the, the main point is I think it's a bad decision. I think Jesse Marsh not a bad coach. Definitely deserves another shot in the Premier League. Maybe one day. Maybe wasn't quite ready. Needs another chance. Needs another round. Whether that be in the Championship, whether that be abroad, whatever. Needs another maybe year or two out of the Prem. Hopefully, come back in for him and and see how he goes. I don't think Southampton. He's not. He's not the break glass in kind in, in case of emergency kind of guy. I think you touched on it earlier about Sean Dyche being, you know, would have been the perfect fit for both of these clubs, particularly, I guess, Southampton, because, you know, Leeds technically is still above the drop zone, whereas Southampton is well and truly in it. Um, who do you think, who do you think is with him off the market? Who do you think is that available, you know, break class in case of emergency kind of coach that is, Available. I've kind of put you on the spot here to think about available yeah. coaches. But I'm trying to think, Kate, hey, because because really, like nowadays, a lot of those guys who you know break glass in case of emergency, they they're not really around anymore. I'm thinking like you know, like your Harry Redknapps, your Roy Hodgson's, those sorts of guys. I mean, <laughs> we haven't seen Sam Allardyce for a long time. I wonder if he could just be just rock up out of nowhere and just just sort of be like, all right, I'm here to save the day, Big Sam. But yeah, I think that's a really that's that's a tough question to be honest. I mean, look, it might it might just be a case of considering those I suppose proven guys aren't necessarily around anymore or they're retired or, or whatnot. It might just be a case of taking a risk on on someone who, who you think might do a decent job. But I think whoever they do get in, maybe Jesse Marshall is just one of the contenders that was interested in and keen to take the job because, you know, I know Leeds have had a tough time of uh, trying to find a replacement. They've been rejected by quite a few people. Former Ajax boss, boss as well has rejected them. So, yeah, look, I, I I can't give you an answer there, but maybe it's time for Big Sam to return. Well, look, I've got to be honest, I forgot about Sam Allardyce until you, we just started talking about it then. <laughs> if one of them doesn't press the fireman Sam button, I'm going to be disappointed. <laughs> um. I wonder then if, if Southampton, you know, they're looking at a decent manager, maybe not a relegation specialist. Are Southampton kind of prepping themselves that, yep, 
okay, we're hiring the best manager we can that will take a job at our club. Um, and then going, well, if he can get us out, great. If he can't, we're looking for someone that can lead us back into the Premier back League down. come yeah. next season. And I, I know that's a bit of a pessimistic view, and I, I guess you're a Southampton fan, not maybe what you want to be thinking about or hearing, but do you reckon that's maybe a bit of forward planning? They don't want to be hiring, say, your Sam Allardyce, and if he doesn't get the job done because they just don't have the squad to do it, then obviously Sam Allardyce is not going to hang around in the championship. So... I think I think as well. Both sides, oh, sorry, mate. Just both sides as well. I've got have uh, signed quite a few young players, especially Southampton took a few players off City's books, and they were quite young, unproven. So you could look at it like that, and maybe Jesse Marsh is the kind of guy that you'd want to develop them because he's he's been at teams like that, like um, Salzburg and Leipzig as well, which generally sign those profile of players, maybe a little bit more established, but. Yeah, that, that could be a fair shout. And I think, look, maybe there is a bit of championship prepping there. Well, look, Jesse Marsh doesn't strike me as someone who'd go down to the championship, but perhaps that, that's his options right now if he wants to get straight back into management as he failed in Germany as well. So, look, maybe it could be a road to recovery for, for both parties. Um, all right, moving on. Uh, we're going to talk about Tony over Nunes, but I, th- I think what we'll do, Josh, is we'll, we'll leave that for another time um, yep. because that, that could be quite a lengthy debate and I kind of want to cover it properly so i think that'll be all for today's show is there anything else you'd like to add just before we finish off no i don't think so i think we covered everything pretty in depth that we wanted to talk about and we didn't really touch on anything else i yeah no, i don't think there's anything else i need to cover at the moment mate all right no problems yeah sitting at an hour and 20 so if you're still listening thank you uh <laughs> hopefully you haven't bored you with our hashtag analysis but yeah, no, look, that's all for today's show. Make sure you give it, leave a review, five stars only, of course. You can find us on all the usual podcast platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, and many more. Thank you for listening to the Perth De La Prem podcast, your home for weekly Premier League review and hashtag analysis. I'm off to bed for a massive game between Arsenal and City. I'm going to regret this one in the morning. Until next time, thank you for listening. And it's live.